Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, the podcast of excellence. We're talking about Of Human Bondage, chapter 104. Philip is not liking where he has ended up in life. Swim said the mum of fishy said, well, from personal experience, at least one of my son's experience... Having really cruddy jobs when young is a great motivator to get or keep your act together. Yeah, cruddy jobs. Although, you know, I've had, um, it depends, I suppose, how you would define a cruddy job, right? Like, I've had, uh, very well paying jobs, which I've just hated the whole experience from the work the lifestyle, the even out of work, like outside of work hours, I didn't like the lifestyle that I was had to have to have that career, if that makes sense. So it was like a corporate gig in a very grey office, with very grey people, very grey everything. It just it made my whole life feel a little bit kind of pointless. And although it was the best money I've ever earned, I just kind of swore I'd never do that work again because I just made me just hate life. Um, by the same time, I've had, you know, at the moment, well, actually before COVID, I should say, so last summer, last year, um, up until, I guess, February-ish this year, I was working weekends at a winery just as kitchen staff, you know, making coffees, uh, chopping vegetables in the kitchen, serving tables, taking orders from customers, that kind of thing. And um, I love it. Like, I just really enjoy the work. I like the people. I like the place. I like the busyness of working in a kitchen. And, I mean, that is what you would call a cruddy job, I think. But I would much prefer to do that job than to do the job that I used to do. Uh, so I suppose it's not based on pay is what I'm trying to say or how kind of, you know, impressive the career is. It's not that impressive to work in a kitchen. Um, and it was very impressive to be, you know, a corporate business analyst, but I didn't like doing it. So, you know, for me, that was the cruddy job. Um, anyway, I don't think that's the case with Philip. I think he would much prefer to be a qualified physician and, and be a doctor. Um, anywho, I'm just talking crap really right now. That was the only discussion um, we had from Swim to the Mum Fishy uh, for today's chapter, I suppose. Everyone's gone quiet on Philip. It kind of gets to the point with this book where Philip, there's just like not that much development from one chapter to the next. Although this particular chapter was... was a, There was a quite a bit of development. You know, Philip, we're kind of seeing Philip land into this new life and, and you know, all his plans going out the window and now we're seeing the repercussions of that. Um, but, you know, there's been a few points in this book where it's just like, okay, so he's making dumb decisions based on Mildred again. Or, you know... Uh, yeah, it was just kind of a bit repetitive. Uh, okay, so let's read the next chapter and just keep moving, hey? Um, 
can nearly finish this book. We'll start voting soon, by the way. Um, in the next day or two, I'll put up the voting thing. Chapter 105. The wages were paid once a month by the secretary. On payday, each batch of assistants coming down from tea went into the passage and joined the long line of people waiting orderly, like the audience, in a queue outside a gallery door. One by one they entered the office. The secretary sat at a desk with wooden bowls of money in front of him, and he asked the employee's name. He referred to a book quickly after a suspicious glance at the assistant, said aloud the sum due, and taking money out of the bowl, counted it in his hand. Thank you, he said. Next, thank you, was the reply. The assistant passed on to the second secretary and before leaving the room paid him four shillings for washing money, two shillings for the club, and any fines that he might have incurred. With what he had left, he went back into his department and there waited till it was time to go. Most of the men in Philip's house were in debt. With the woman who sold the sandwiches, they generally ate for supper. She was a funny old thing, very fat, with a broad red face and black hair plastered neatly on each side of the forehead in the fashion shown in early pictures of Queen Victoria. She always wore a little black bonnet and a white apron. Her sleeves were tucked up to the elbow. She cut the sandwiches with large, dirty, greasy hands, and there was grease on her bodice, grease on her apron, grease on her skirt. She was called Mrs. Fletcher, but everyone addressed her as Ma, she, all, was all, she was already fond of the shop assistants, whom she called her boys. She never minded giving credit towards the end of the month, and it was known that now and then she had lent someone or other a few shillings when he was in straits. She was a good woman. When they were leaving, or when they came back from the holidays, the boys kissed her fat red cheek, and more than one dismissed and unable to find another job had got for nothing food to keep body and soul together. The boys were sensible of her large heart and repaid her with genuine affection. There was a story they liked to tell of a man who had done well for himself at Bradford and had five shops of his own and had come back after 15 years and visited Ma Fletcher and given her a gold watch. Philip found himself with 18 shillings left out of his month's pay. It was the first money he had ever earned in his life. It gave him none of the pride which might have been expected, but merely a feeling of dismay. The smallness of the sum emphasised the hopelessness of his position. He took 15 shillings to Mrs. Athelney to pay back part of what he owed her, but she would not take more than half a sovereign. Do you know at that rate, Alt, it'll take me eight months to settle up with you? As long as Athelney's in work, I can afford to wait, and who knows, perhaps they'll give you a raise. Athelney kept on saying that he would speak to the manager about Philip. It was absurd that no use should be made of his talents, but he did nothing, and Philip soon came to the conclusion that the press agent was not a person of so much importance in the manager's eyes as in his own. Occasionally he saw Athelney in the shop. His flamboyance was extinguished, and in neat, commonplace, shabby clothes he hurried, a subdued, unassuming little man, through the departments as though anxious to escape notice. When I think of how I'm wasted here, there, he said at home, I am almost tempted to give in my notice. There's no scope for a man like me. I'm stunted. I'm starved. Mrs. Athelney, quietly sewing, took no notice of his complaints. Her mouth tightened a little. It's very hard to get jobs in these times. It's regular and it's safe. I expect you'll stay there as long as you give satisfaction. It was evident that Athelney would. 
It was interesting to see the ascendancy which the uneducated woman, bound to him by no legal tie, had acquired over the brilliant, unstable man. Mrs. Athelney treated Philip like Philip with motherly kindness now that he was in a different position, and he was touched by her anxiety that he should make a good meal. It was the solace of his life, and when he grew used to it, the monotony of it was that what chiefly appalled him, that he could go every Sunday to that friendly house. It was a joy to sit in the stately Spanish chairs and discuss all manner of things with the Thelney. Though his condition seemed so desperate, he never left him to go back to Harrington Street without a feeling of exultation. At first, Philip, in order not to forget what he had learned, tried to go on reading his medical books, but he found it useless. He could not fix his attention on them after the exhausting work of the day, and it seemed hopeless to continue working when he did not know in how long he would be able to back, go back to the hospital. He dreamed constantly that he, was, that he was in the wards. The awakening was painful. The sensation of other people sleeping in the room was inexpressibly irksome to him. He had been used to the solitude, and to be with others, always, never to be by himself for an instant, was at these moments horrible to him. It was then that he found it most difficult to combat his despair. He saw himself going on with that life, first to the right, second on the left, madam, indefinitely, and having to be thankful if he was not sent away. The men who had gone to the war would be coming home soon, the firm had guaranteed to take them back, and this must mean that others would be sacked. He would have to stir himself even to keep the wretched post he had. There was only one thing to free him, and that was the death of his uncle. He would get a few hundred pounds then, and on this he could finish his course at the hospital. Philip began to wish with all his might for the old man's death. He reckoned out how long he could possibly live. He was well over seventy. Philip did not know his exact age, but he must be at least seventy-five. He suffered from chronic bronchitis, and every winter had a bad cough. Though he knew them by heart, Philip read over and over again the details of his textbook of medicine of chronic bronchitis in the old. A severe winter might be too much for the old man. With all his heart, Philip longed for cold and rain. He thought of it constantly, so that it became a monomania. Uncle William was affected by the great heat, too, and in August they had three weeks of sweltering weather. Philip imagined to himself that one day perhaps a telegram would come saying that the vicar had died suddenly and he pictured himself his unutterable relief. As he stood at the top of the stairs and directed people to the departments they wanted, he occupied his mind with thinking incessantly what he would do with the money. He did not know how much it would be, perhaps no more than £500, but even that would be enough. He would leave the shop at once. He would not bother to give notice. He would pack his box and go without saying a word to anybody, and then he would return to the hospital. That was the first thing. Would he have forgotten much? In six months he could get it all back, and then he would take his three examinations as soon as he could, midwifery first, then medicine and surgery. The awful fear seized him that his uncle, notwithstanding his promises, might leave everything he had to parish or the church. The thought made Philip sick. He could not be so cruel, but if he if that happened, Philip was quite determined what to do. He would not go on in that way indefinitely. His life was only tolerable because he could look forward to something better. If he had no hope, he would have no fear. The only brave thing to do then 
would be to commit suicide, and thinking this over too, Philip decided minutely what painless drug he would take and how he would get hold of it. It encouraged him to think that. It, if things became undurable, unendurable, he had at all events a way out. Second to the right, madam, and down the stairs. First on the left, straight through, Mr. Phillips, forward, please. Once a month for a week, Philip was on duty. He had to go to the department at seven in the morning and keep an eye on the sweepers. When they finished, he had to take the sheets off the cases and the models. Then in the evening, when the assistants left, he had to put back the sheets on the models and the cases and gang the sweepers again. It was a dusty, dirty job. He was not allowed to read or write or smoke, but just had to walk about, and the time hung heavily on his hands. When he went off at half past nine, he had supper given him, and this was the only consolation, for tea at five o'clock had left him with a healthy appetite, and the bread and cheese, the abundant cocoa, which, which the firm provided, were welcome. One day when Philip had begun, had been at Lynn's for three months, Mr. Sampson, the buyer, came into the department fuming with anger. The manager, happening to notice the costume window as he came in, had sent for the buyer and made satirical remarks upon the colour scheme. Forced to submit in silence to his superior's sarcasm, Mr. Sampson took it out of the assistants, and he rated the wretched fellow whose duty it was to dress the window. If you want a thing well done, you must do it yourself, Mr. Sampson stormed. I've always said it, and I always shall. One can't leave anything to you chaps. Intelligent, you call yourselves, do you? Intelligent? He threw the word at the assistants as though it were the bitterest term of reproach. Do you know that if you put an electric blue in the window, it'll kill all the other blues? He looked round the department furiously, and his eye fell upon Philip. You'll dress the window next Friday, Kerry. Let's see what you can make of it. He went into his office muttering angrily. Philip's heart sank when Friday morning came. He went into the window with a sickening sense of shame. His cheeks were burning. It was horrible to display himself to the passers-by. And though he told himself it was foolish to give way to such a feeling, he turned his back to the street. There was not much chance that any of the students at the hospital would pass along Oxford Street at that hour, and he knew hardly anyone else in London, but as Philip worked with a huge lump in his throat, he fancied that one that on turning round he would catch the eye of some man he knew. He made all the haste he could, by the simple observation that all reds went together, and by spacing costumes more than was usual, Philip got a very good effect, and when the buyer went into the street to look at the result, he was obviously pleased. I knew I shouldn't go far wrong in putting you on the window. The fact is, you and me are gentlemen. Mind you, I wouldn't say this in the department, but you and me are gentlemen, and that always tells. It's no good your telling me it doesn't tell, because I know it does tell. Philip was put on the job regularly, but he could not accustom himself to the publicity, and he dreaded Friday morning on which the window was dressed, with a terror that made him awake at five o'clock and lie sleepless with sickness in his heart. The girls in the department noticed his shame-faced way, and they very soon discovered his trick of standing with his back to the street. They laughed at him and called him Sidey. I suppose you're afraid your aunt will come along and cut out you out of her will. On the whole, he got on well enough with the girls. They thought him a little queer, but his club foot seemed to excuse his not being like the rest, and they found in due course that he was good-natured. He never minded helping anyone, and he was polite and even-tempered. You can see he's a gentleman, they said. Very reserved, isn't he, said one young woman, to whose passionate enthusiasm for the theatre he had listened unmoved. Most of them had fellas, and those who hadn't said they had rather than have it supposed that no one had an inclination for them. 
One or two showed signs of being willing to start a flirtation with Philip, and he watched their manoeuvres with grave amusement. He had had enough of love-making for some time, and he was nearly always tired and often hungry. Alright, there we go. Another chapter done for you. Have your say about the chapter over at the Hemingway List subreddit. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.